desires to seek unity in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well in Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek this harmony on here, here on Concord Matters by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. Because what we say is we believe, teach, and confess that these writings are in accord with God's holy word. Because if it's not about God's word, then what's the point? I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Last week, we were blessed by our study of the truth of what Scripture says about the Trinity. And as the confessors understood all theology to be brought back to salvation and the care of souls, they started by answering the next two very important questions after Article 1, Who am I? And who is Christ? If we get these questions wrong, well, it not only is a faith issue, but it is an eternal, it has internal implications. So we better get these right. So we'll try, we will confess the truth to make sure we're in the right place today. Open up your book of Concord and open up your Bible and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our text today of our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome the Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller, Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Dr. Mueller, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you today. Dr. Mueller, tell us, you know, this is our first time together here on Concord Matters. Tell us about yourself and your work at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Sure. I've served Concordia for 28 years. I came here as a professor of systematic theology. Uh, for 19 of those years, I was the Dean of Christ College, the School of uh, Theology, Philosophy, and Churchwork, and most recently was uh, moved over to the position of Vice President and Chief Mission Officer. And that's a position where I work alongside the President uh, on anything related to institutional identity. So campus ministries, church relations, faculty and staff development. I uh, watch over publications uh, for their content. Uh, I interview all finalists for employment, make sure we're all pulling the same direction, all upholding our same mission. So I get to empower a lot of people to do their jobs more effectively and to secure the future of Concordia as a, as a university of the church. I also serve as an assistant pastor. I'm called to St. Paul's Lutheran Church uh, here in Irvine, which is a real blessing as well. Well, and this is a reminder for you, our listeners, is to pray for our Concordia universities because... Uh, each day, they they are there to confess Christ. That's why we, as a church, have universities, is for the sake of their proclamation of the gospel and for the care of the people there, but also the um, uh, formation of future church workers and 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 so forth. And so that that's a huge task. I can't even imagine. So so uh, so you are listeners. Pray for our Concordias as they continue to be steadfast in their confession of faith in the future. Um, but Dr. Mueller, we're here in the uh, Lutheran Confessions, which is the foundation of, of the church and our schools. Uh, tell, t- let me ask you this question to begin. As we look at the Augsburg Confession and the Book of Concord in general, why is that important for our listeners and even important for as you look at your work at Concordia University? Sure. Well, um, you know, we it's common for people to say, you know, all Christians share the Bible, which for the most part is a true statement. 
But, you know, any conversation with other Christians becomes pretty clear. There's different interpretations, different understandings. Uh, at some point, you need to be able to say, we agree on certain principles. You know, I can, I can start a conversation with another Christian with nothing but the word of God and spend lots of time walking through. And we could develop, say, the doctrine of the Trinity by reading all the relevant Bible passages and going through. And that's important work that we need to do. But there comes a time when we can also say, you know, we agree on certain things. We don't always have to start from the very beginning. Uh, and in fact, we can look at some of the challenges to teachings and the way that they've been understood over the years and reach a point of agreement where we can say, yes, on the basis of scripture, uh, this is what we believe to be true. And it lets us, frankly, go deeper into our conversation uh, by looking at more nuances, uh, further aspects of the topic, uh, all kinds of different things. And so we flesh out what might first seem to be a simple topic might actually be pretty complicated. Uh, so that's, I think that's one of the purposes that we've got there. Uh, it reminds me that I'm not alone in my faith. I confess this faith with the whole Christian church, uh, and there are others uh, who share this same confession with me. In fact, the Oxford Confession, you know, we think of it, it's one of the Lutheran confessions, but it wasn't trying to be a unique church. It was trying to speak for all Christendom. You know, it was the fundamental document of the Western church. You know, it's the first of the Western churches to define itself uh, in this way. And it was only when pushed out by the Church of Rome that it became its own distinct thing. And so within this confession, are so many articles that we share, not just with other Lutherans, but with other Christians. And in fact, some of them, including the first one we studied today, were agreed to by the Roman Catholic Church, even in the 16th century. So we rejoice when unanimity of faith is found, when we share a common confession, and we strive to work together on areas where we don't yet agree. Uh, that we might study God's word and draw closer together as we confess his truth. And that's the beauty of what we're studying today is Article 2 and Article 3, that they, and Article 1 that we covered last week, that there is unity among majority of Christendom, if not, if you could even say all of Christendom, the ones who confess the truth, um, that this is, these are ones that we can say, we agree on this. Is, is that fair to say? Absolutely. Well, I'll say this. Thanks be to God for that. So as we look at this today, we are in the, the reader's edition of the Lutheran Confessions um, from the, the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. This is the second edition, and we are studying today on page 31. We're beginning with Article 2, and we'll start with the note for introductory sake, because um, as we talked about last week, who is God? And then it's Coming back to us, not for, I would say, selfish reasons, <laughs> but for the purpose of showing people uh, the path, uh, who we are, and because how we look at ourselves is going to help us better understand our need for Christ. So we're in Article 2, Original Sin. We'll be reading the note. It says, Sin is much more than thinking, saying, and doing things that are wrong. It is a terminal disease. We are all conceived and born in sin. We inherit it from our parents, first parents, Adam and Eve. The disease of sin can, can be overcome, but only by one medicine, the cleansing, healing, and forgiving blood of God's own Son. By rejecting Pelagian errors in Article 2, 
The Augsburg Confession subtly, sub, subtly refers to the Roman view of sin. The Roman Church taught and still teaches that concupiscence, the inborn inclination to sin, is not actually sin. By misdiagnosing our fatal illness, Rome leads people to believe that they are able to cooperate with God's grace for salvation. Lutheranism rejects all teachings that imply we are responsible for or contribute to our salvation. Now, Dr. Mueller, as we look at this, uh, original sin, it's, it's fascinating to me that that's the second article they put in there, which is maybe not American, because usually we try to start with how the potential of humanity, but here they're kind of talking about us and uh, maybe our lack of potential. I'm not sure how to say. Why is original sin so important to put in right away in the Augsburg Confession? Sure. Well, there is an order to the Augsburg Confession. And uh, to be honest, I think many, many times we read just the articles one at a time. Uh, and so we don't perhaps think about the structure to it. But if you think just right here at the beginning, God, Article 1, sends to his fallen people, Article 2, a savior, Article 3, who justifies them. And it keeps going going from there. Uh, so this is really a, almost a law, well, it, it is a law gospel move where it's showing we, we only need a savior because of our sin. And no one in the 16th century was questioning the fact that people commit sins. But how deep does that problem go? You know, is there any part of us that's left without sin or any great potential that we might not need Jesus? Well, of course there's not. Uh, but this article is really trying to lay that foundation to say everybody needs the redemption that comes through Christ because that is our only hope against this fatal disease that we all share. I heard it put once that the beauty of Article 2 is it puts all of us on the same playing field, that there's not a, there's not a level where one person's above the other. Um, it's not based on uh, a status. It's not based on economics. Um, it's not based on lineage. It's we all have this, as it says, terminal disease. And, I, and to me, that's just that's just huge. I mean, it goes into churches and our schools and everything else that we are able to say that we all need Jesus and a very important piece of who we are. Anything else you want to highlight before we dig into the text of original sin? Yeah. What, what I appreciate about this article, and we'll see it more as we go along, is, you know, in the United States, I think this is a original sin is a very controversial doctrine among many Christians. But if you look at how this article is framed, you can see that most of the controversy misses the point uh, because it's, it's often confusing actual sin and original sin in some strange ways. And this really is leveling that playing field, only exempting you know, Adam and Eve before the fall mm. and Christ. Every other human being is included in this. So yeah, I think you're catching exactly right. It is a complete identification of every human being with this sinfulness and this need. Well, let's get into it because, well, once again, we want to be able to answer that question, who am I? Because if we see ourselves in an incorrect way, then we won't understand the full need for Jesus, as Dr. Mueller said so beautifully today. Article 2, Original Sin. Our churches teach that since the fall of Adam... Romans 5, verse 12. All who are naturally born are born with sin, that is, without the fear of God, without trusting God, and with the inclination to sin, called concupiscence. 
Concupiscence is a disease and original vice that is truly sin. It damns and brings eternal death on those who are not born again, or born anew, excuse me, through baptism and the Holy Spirit, John 3, verse 5. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. Now, let's, let's start from the beginning here. So he's saying, I mean, the confessors are saying that basically we never even started with a chance. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. So now for all humanity, that's we might want to clarify, right? So it starts, it's a very precise article, since the fall of Adam. So it's not putting sinfulness on God. You know, God did not create us sinful. Mm-hmm. He did not create evil. He did not cause this occurrence. So creation originally was exceedingly good, very good. But since the fall, we're in, we're in sin. Uh, and then note the other qualifier that's there. All who are naturally born. Now, there's only one who wasn't naturally born, and that is the one who was born of a virgin, the Son of God. Uh, all other human beings have this. Now, what I find in talking with people about original sin when they object to it, most of the time what they object to is the fairness of it all. Uh, and it's in the sense of, If my father sinned, how is it fair that I'm punished for his sin? You know, why should I be punished for an action that someone else did? But if you look in this article, it's not saying that exactly. And frankly, for an adult who's speaking or anyone old enough to speak, to to talk about the fairness of, well, my father sinned and so I'm sinful is just a dodge because quite frankly, Yes, my father was a sinner, but it didn't take me too long to commit any actual sins myself. You know, I'm, I'm just as guilty by my actions. This article is taking us back into the other part of it, into our sinful nature. And unfortunately, I think when people stumble over the question of, you know, one sin connects to another, what they really lose is this incredible insight into human nature that explains so much of why our day-to-day life is what it is and why we struggle so much. Original sin isn't just guilt, but it's that great word that's embedded in this article, concupiscence, the inclination to sin, the desire to sin. I like calling it the addiction to sin. Mm. That's what explains so much about our human condition. Can you break that down for us even more? Because um, it's a word, and that's my, I challenge our listeners to this week, talk to one of your friends and just use that in a sentence. You know, due to concupiscence, this is going on, or whatever it might be, just in your conversations. But concupiscence, it just, you know, you're teaching your confirmands or your, your beginning of Christianity course in, at, at, at Concordia University. How would you break that down for us even, even more? Sure. Uh, we're inclined to sin. We, you know, I, I hate saying all these things, but they're absolutely true. I love to sin. (laughs) I'm really good at it. Uh, And the part that frustrates me the most is no matter, you know, the harder I try, the more pernicious this seems to be. You know, I I commit myself, I am not going to do something. And it seems as soon as you say that it pops right up in your head. 
you know, it's always around you. Know, why, why is it we try so hard and we keep falling back? And most of the time we don't try very hard, to be honest. Mm. Uh, concupiscence is a brokenness in us. It's a brokenness. I, I like to sin and not just that left to my own. I'm probably going to fall and sin very quickly, very quickly. You know, um, so I'm a sinner. My children are sinners. I didn't need to teach any of them to sin. They were quite good at that by themselves. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, they also learned sin from me because they saw me and as, as all children see their parents and repeated things both good and bad. Uh, but I didn't need to teach them to be rebellious. I didn't need to teach them to be disobedient, you know, to get in trouble. They're quite good at that by themselves because that's part of our brokenness. It's I really do me. like the analogy of addiction for this. You know, if you if you think you know, addiction is a is a terrible thing, people under its under its grip who struggle usually for their whole lives to overcome it uh, and know that it's a constant battle to stay away from the thing that draws them so closely. And that's how original sin works with us. You know, we we know those tragic cases where a, where an infant is born addicted because of bad behavior by its mother. Uh, and we're frustrated by that, rightly so. It's a terrible situation and a medical crisis. Spiritually, every child is born of that crisis, already addicted to sin, turned away from the ways of God. And that stays with us our whole life. You know, and, and as we look at this, one of the difficult parts, and you said it, and it, it nails me to the ground, to be quite honest, is not only are my children, I have four children, um, dealing with this, but they're also learning to sin from me, where we speak a lot about they're going to learn how to do good things from me, but I, I, I have not spoken much, personally, of course, who wants to? Or heard other people say, my kids learn to sin from me. So right now, already, <laughs> we, we need a savior in Article 2. <laughs> we need it pretty quickly here, I think, for all of us as we, as we think of concupiscence and the inclination. And I specifically, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on this too, because you, you spoke about it. One of my co-workers now, she just spoke about how it was amazing to her when she became a parent, how she didn't have to teach her children to lie. They just... <laughs> did it, you know? And what does that mean for us as we look at this without us going to despair, clearly, but to have a fullness of this understanding of original sin and, and why that's important. So any other thoughts as, as we, we look at this, you, you know, it's just, it's just part of who we are and the addiction word is so important. Other thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, we do struggle with this notion. Uh, and so I find it helpful to connect it also to our whole human condition. I didn't have to teach my children how to get sick either. You know, I didn't have to teach them how to acquire a virus and, and be susceptible to it and, you know, get a cold or any, you know, any of the things in a broken world, weak bodies get sick in a broken world, concupiscent people sin. I don't like it. We shouldn't like it, but denying that reality does us no good. It's like saying, well, 
my, my child's never been sick before, so I don't need to worry about them, you know, contracting, you know, the flu. Well, of course I do. You know, they're in a world where this is all around them. Uh, my child may not have committed all the sins I can think of when they're an infant, but sin is all around them. And yeah, as you said, you don't need to teach them uh, about it. They're going to find on their own. And so we, we see the scriptural account to this. Um, you know, Romans 5, Psalm 51 is probably the most common I've seen that you're born in sin. Um, other scriptural thoughts you have on, uh, as we look at original sin, concupiscence, um, throughout, throughout scripture that, that points us to this reality? Sure. Uh, all, all kinds of things, right? There is no one righteous, not even one. You know, uh, God talks about striving with humanity, you know, about, about wrestling, wrestling with us. Uh, by nature, we are hostile to God. You know, this, the, the, the person of the flesh, you know, cannot submit to God. Uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, all over the place in Scripture, it has these terribly depressing passages that tell us that we can't do this by ourselves. But they're only depressing if you leave yourself there. You know, the, the point isn't, look what it, how terrible all this is. The point is, you can't do this on your own. God's here for you. God's grace will redeem you. Christ is sufficient. It's all designed to get us there. As we look at this, it ends that the second paragraph, or number two, on page 32, where it talks about concupiscence. But then it speaks right away uh, for those who are not born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit. Tell us the connection of, okay, uh, we are have original sin and, and the gifts that we receive in baptism and how the Concordians uh, brought that together. Sure. Well, uh, you know, sin, sin is the diagnosis, you know, with, with sin, we're alienated from God. In fact, I, I really love the way, uh, that it frames it, right. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're born with sin. That is look what it puts first without the fear of God, without trust in God. And then with the inclination to sin. Uh, so it puts up front, the biggest problem of sin is faithlessness. You know, it's, it's no faith. Uh, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, as the scripture says. Uh, on our own, we stand before God as sinners, and our sin condemns us. That's where it's trying to take us, right? It's, it's all there. And so this article does condemn very, very clearly people who say, this doesn't matter. It's not sin. You know, look the other way. Look how it, how it pulls that together in, in paragraph three, right? Uh, we rejecting those who deny that it's sin because they thus obscure the glory of Christ's merits and benefits. We're taking Christ out of the way and putting ourselves in the middle, but only Christ can save. Anytime I stand on my own, I stand only as a sinner, and so I deserve condemnation. So what's my solution? Well, the solution is that God gives the gift of faith. God gives the gift of faith. And I think they're connecting it as baptism primarily because uh, so, you know, so quickly listing it this way is because we're thinking both children and adults are received into faith through the working of the Holy Spirit given in baptism 
given in the word, given in, in various ways, that baptism applies to people of all ages. Baptism connects us to Christ. It saves us by the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. It clothes us with Christ. It you know, wraps us in his righteousness so that God, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And the sin is atoned for. Even here in this article on sin, it's still gospel overall. And so as we look at this, we have about two minutes left before our break. It speaks about the Pelagians and others. Can you, can you, it, it speaks about, I mean, it gives very basic understandings that they obscure the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. And, and it kind of makes it sound like we have a chance in this whole thing. Can you tell us more about the Pelagian heresy? Sure. Well, Pelagian heresy basically said that people were able to convert themselves or to save themselves, that there was enough innate goodness in a person uh, that they did not need the help or the assistance of God. It was just all up to the individual. Uh, and uh, there's the full-blown, there's lots of variations of this where you know, a person has more or less power, but all, of, you know, all variations of it put some control with the individual. Uh, and so it's actually being, I think, very uh, politic in how it puts here. Our churches condemn the Pelagians, knowing full well that the Roman Catholics would have to say, yes, we reject the Pelagianism, but then it keeps going. And others who deny that original depravity is sin, which is what the medieval church was saying. They weren't denying that concupiscence existed, but they were saying that it didn't count as sin. It was a condition, but it wasn't a damning condition. And so this puts anybody who's going to lessen the effects of sin or say even worse, we don't need a redeemer to put us right with God and rejects that. We can't be justified by our own works, by our own strength, by our own reason, by our own goodness. Every single human being needs the salvation that Jesus earns. You hear a statement kind of like this. Uh, when it comes to salvation, this is where it becomes an issue. Uh, do your best and God will do the rest. <laughs> it's kind of a, where I've heard it kind of put together as we look at it, that basically we have a chance. Well, we're going to talk more about this, but we need to take our break. We are studying the second and third articles of the Oxford Confession. And we'll be right iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. studying the, and confessing the truth of original sin and the Son of God from the Augsburg Confession with the Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller of Concordia University in Irvine, California. Now, Dr. Mueller, before we get to the Son of God, which obviously we don't want to lay that by any means, um, there's a lot that we could unpack 
But like I said, there's a lot of little statements that are said that can easily be misunderstood because we naturally think that I have to do something, that that I have to be able to do something to save myself or that there's a chance. Even, even I remember one time I had a friend who went to a weekend retreat and they said that everybody begins like with this perfect pearl and throughout your life, it continually just builds this gunk around it and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the goal is to try to get back to that pearl by works and this and this. And I remember in high school thinking, that doesn't sound right. It sounds good, but it doesn't sound right. So there's a lot of those little statements that are out there. Anything else you wanted to share about maybe maybe semi-Pelagian understandings that we'll hear on a daily basis? Yeah, they make so much sense to us rationally, don't they? You know, it, it, it caters to our desire to think, you know, we're basically good people after all. And not only is it biblically false, it's psychologically false. Mm. You know, we know there's something wrong. You know, we recognize it. And no one in, who really spends time says, oh, people are basically good all the way through. Uh, we can only say that if we make excuses. If we do it by comparison, well, everybody does that or everybody struggles. That's normal. Like, yeah, the normal is broken. Normal is broken. There's a freedom that comes with being able to admit the truth. So as I said, I, I, I like to sin. That's my brokenness. I hate <laughs> sin because I'm a child of God. Hmm. But I understand better why I struggle when I consider what scripture teaches about original sin, about concupiscence, I, I struggle with this. Well, as, as you know, Luther said, you know, regarding baptism, right? Uh, we, it, we, it signifies that the old Adam in us must daily be drowned and die along with sins and evil lusts, you know, and a new man arise. Uh, it needs to be drowned. You know, this old nature, I fight against it every day. I understand it better because of this. Uh, I'm not surprised at it because of this. And I'm more watchful because of this. Hmm. But I know none of my salvation is up to me. Well, I'm ready to go to Jesus. Excellent. <laughs> so let's continue on page 32 of the Augsburg Confession. Article 3, the Son of God. We will get First, we'll begin with the note. The Augsburg Confession teaches the historic biblical doctrine of Christ. Many early controversies about Christ's human nature and divine natures were resolved through the careful study of God's word and are reflected in the Nicene Creed. Article 3 echoes that creed, our Lord Jesus Christ is one person, having two natures, truly God and truly man. This is another mystery of the Christian faith that we receive with thanks, bowing before Christ in humble adoration. His incarnation in the womb of his virgin mother, Mary, was our, for our salvation. He is and remains for all eternity the God-man, the one who appeased or propitiated God's wrath against our sin and won for us eternal life. Even now he is present with us through his appointed means of grace, the gospel and the sacraments. He comes to strengthen, sustain, and support us and to bring us safely to our heavenly home. Dr. Mueller, you know, we, we started our time on Concord Matters, at least during my time, um, going back to uh, the small catechism. And right now, I mean, we are, we are knee deep into the second article of the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, what, is, what is this introduction and why is it so important that we get 
Jesus right as we look at um, the Augsburg Confession? Without Christ, we have nothing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, without, without his work, we're still in our sins. If Christ was not crucified, and if he was not resurrected, then what we're doing is a complete waste of time. And as St. Paul says, we should be pitied more than anyone. Yeah. None of this is worth doing if Christ isn't who he says he is. And if he didn't do the work that he came to do. And thanks be to God, he is who he says he is. He is the God man. He was crucified for us. He was resurrected for us. He has justified us. He is our life and our salvation. This article and the one that follows it on justification are the very heart of the Christian faith. Everything rests here. Well, let's dig into it because once again, and this is just a reminder for you, our listeners, is that as we speak about Article 3 and Article 4 especially, it not only is good for your conscience and how you see uh, your relationship with the Lord, um, where am I with the Lord, as maybe commonly said, but it also, this is a, a strong uh, equipping opportunity for you as you confess the faith uh, to your kids or your grandkids or your neighbor uh, to look at these simple words that are given to us in the Augsburg Confession, and I would say Article 2 of the of the Apostles' Creed as well in the small catechism, that you are able to take some of these words and to be able to clearly confess this when the opportunity is there, uh, because people need Jesus, and we have to make sure that we're confessing it correctly. So pay attention to these words and also take them to heart for your own walk with the Lord. So Article 3, the Son of God, our confessors wrote this. Our churches teach that the Word, that is the Son of God, John 1, verse 14, assumed the human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there are two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably joined in one person. There is one Christ, true God and true man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, truly suffered and was crucified, died and was buried. He did this to reconcile the Father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for the original guilt, but also for all actual sins of mankind. John 1 verse 29. He also descended into hell and truly rose again on the third day. Afterward, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. There he forever reigns and has dominion over all creatures. He sanctifies those who believe in him by sending the Holy Spirit into their hearts to rule, comfort, and make them alive. He defends them against the devil and the power of sin. The same Christ will openly come again to judge the living and the dead and so forth according to the Apostles' Creed. So, Pastor, let's, let's keep this simple. Who is this son of God that we confess? Yeah, I always feel the need to say amen after those, uh, <laughs> those passages because that is such a meaty confession of Jesus. Right? It's all here. It's all here, right? He is the God-man, fully human, fully divine. You know, born of Mary, crucified, died, buried, resurrected. You know, it, it recounts, and this is extreme, as you noted, this is so much the language of the creeds that's being, being repeated here. In part, I think, uh, just for the original document, so that there was no accusation that the Lutherans didn't hold to the teachings of the creeds. Hmm. 
it does recount those those fundamental truths and then look at the things that that it's kind of clarifying or not clarifying but overlaying with it so that there's no doubt right he did this to reconcile the father to us to be a sacrifice for all sins right uh, he sends the spirit he's you know he makes us alive he defends us Christ is our life. He's our savior in all ways, in all ways. And so this is, this is just, it's doxological, right? It's a, it's a passage of worship and it's, in its clearest form as it confesses the most gracious act of God imaginable. So let's break down a few of the dynamics of this is we speak about often the two natures of Christ, that he is divine and human. We can easily make this something where ah, that's just kind of theologian talk, you know. Uh, that's something that you talk about at Concordia University at the upper level pre-seminary or DCE classes that really is not relevant to the rest of us in the real world. But why is it important that we are able to say at the same time that he is divine and human and it's inseparable? Why is that important to the to us as Christians? Sure. Uh, I mean, the one answer would be because it's true. Uh, and we want to know the truth of God's word. But really, this is the very essence of what salvation is. You know, the, for us to have a savior, so he, humanity is under the curse of sin. Humanity fell. It's a human that is part of the solution. right? So Christ comes in our place by being one of us, by being genuinely, actually, fully human. So he assumes a human nature. He's born. He lives. He dies. You know, he goes through all these human things, and he does it as a sacrifice. Without being human, God is immortal. He could not die. Being human, taking on a body, he's able to suffer, to die, to bear our guilt, to be connected to us critical for our salvation. But it would not have been enough if he was only a human. No man can redeem another. The cost is too great, the scripture says. We need someone of sufficient worth, sufficient value to be a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Once, at the beginning of our story, there was a human being who was created without sin, and he fell into sin anyway. We needed a savior who was able to resist temptation completely, to overcome it, to fulfill the law perfectly, to do all the things that every other human being has failed to do, to do them perfectly. Christ is God. Christ is man. We need both of these uh, as part of our salvation. And yet it is not you know, two different things. This is one being, one person completely united, and more than that, united for all times. Christ Jesus has ascended into heaven with his glorified body and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will return with his human body uh, to, to be our judge and to redeem us and to take us home. It's one of us, and it's also God. We need both these natures. One person, and I think this brings us together, 
and I'm a simple-minded person, so I'm trying to think through this uh, very clearly, is, for example, if we have an opportunity to save ourselves, then the cross had no purpose. And so we, we speak that way very clearly. And if Jesus was not godly, then his blood wouldn't save us. And if he was not human, then he would not have you know, been at our level, and therefore, as Hebrews commonly speaks about, wouldn't understand where we're coming from, if you will. And so I'm, I'm trying to always clarify those realities of bringing it back. As you said, it's true, but also just bringing it back to simplicity of there's a reason why we need original sin, because if we have a small chance, then the cross has no purpose. And, and if God is not God and man, or Jesus is not God and man, then that has implications for us as well. Any other further thoughts you have, because we're breaking this down in, in, in beautiful ways. So other thoughts you have on as we teach um, and confess this as Christians. Sure. Well, you just alluded to Hebrews, and I think it's got one of the great applications of the incarnation there. You know, we have a high priest, we have Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who knows our experiences, who faced every temptation. You know, we, you know, one of our temptations is to feel that we're all alone, that we're the only ones to experience something that no one understands. Our Lord understands. He's lived this and he overcame. Unlike us, you know, we give into temptation. He didn't. You know, it's all connected to us. And he gives us that victory. You know, I know I fail at this. And I'm utterly amazed, but thankful it's true. God says, You're victorious, not because of me, but because of Jesus. When it speaks, there's a language here that I that often I'm a little bit clunky with, is at the end of number three in Article 3, it says, language from the creed. He said, he did this to reconcile the Father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of mankind, from John 121, which is the reference of John the Baptist when he pointed at Jesus and said, Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when it breaks us down with this language, we don't use this very often, original guilt, but also for actual sins. Break that down for us. What does that mean? Sure. Original, original guilt, the guilt we inherit, the, the original sin that we were just talking about, both the concupiscence and the inherited guilt is forgiven in Christ, as are the sins that I commit each day. And both of those are important, right? My condition is forgiven, and I live in a state of grace because of it. Uh, and the failings, the many failings I have constantly when I go against God's will are also forgiven. There is nothing left off the table here. Every bit of me, all that I am, and everything I do is under, God, is under Christ's grace. That's freedom to know that. What, what ways do we <laughs> make distinctions? Because I'm thinking about this quite a bit, that I will make a distinction of, well, I didn't act on that sin, therefore it's not sinful, or my sin is not as great as the others, or, or something along those lines, because we are often wanting to put them in categories of, bad or not as bad or 
or, you know, kind of justifiable sin versus not justifiable sin. But here that takes that completely off the table. So can you talk about that a little bit of how we, once again, we're naturally led the inclination to do this all the time and why we need to confess exactly what Jesus died for into the, into our, into our hearts. Yeah. It, it's understandable, right? Cause we, we think about sin as it affects us or other people. And so that, you know, there's a sense in which we can, you can talk about greater or lesser sins, you know, uh, murdering someone is a sin. Hating someone is a sin. I would rather that you hate me than that you murder me, right? Because the, the effect on me is experienced in a different way. And so we, we think that way sometimes, but we forget that before God, sin, any sin is condemning. Any sin breaks relationship. Any sin can alienate us from him. And it doesn't do any good for us to compare or contrast or try to make less of things or make excuses for things. That's just trying to build ourselves up from a condition that we already know is broken and sinful and hopeless on our own. We waste a lot of time trying to explain our sin away when Christ has a much better answer for it. He redeems it. It continues on, and I, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by by this. And I, I've read this many times, <laughs> Doctor Mueller, and it it is it is a, just a reminder that it really always comes back to confessing the truth of who Christ is, and it's not just because it's right, which I think often I will fall into and say this is the right thing, and therefore um, that's is right, and therefore that's what it is, which we need to do as Christians to be bold in our confession. But also, it has huge implications for us. To realize that sin, someone is able to say to me as as now my pastor when I when I go to church will say, yeah, that sin was died for, you know, um, that that sin that thought died for, that sin in the past that happened to you died for, taken, put it on himself. That's why this is such an important article of everything that we see that you are able to say someone is able to say to you, which we call our pastors and our other people in their vocations, that's been died for. Uh, so it has huge implications of one, why go to church? <laughs> why, you know, why you have something as important as Dr. Mueller talked about at Concordia, that, that, that identity as a Christian university and to, that you're able to talk about all these things and, and to point people back away from themselves and back to Christ. All of that has huge implications on everything and for the sake of you having the assurance that Christ has died for that. Uh, before we get to this last uh, two paragraphs here, anything else you want to highlight in that, really that first paragraph? Oh, we probably could talk all day, but just <laughs> anything else you want to highlight? Yeah, I just just think I, you captured it so well there that all of this is is done. Yeah, completely forgiven. It's interesting that, you know, paragraph or line line three, um, that, that, that little insertion. So we're, we're still midway in the work of Christ. It's, you know, detail on creeds. It's just, you have to stop and say this great truth. Yeah. He's crucified. He's resurrected. You're reconciled. Yeah. You're forgiven. There's nothing left behind. And then it goes on to talk more about the work of Christ. Right. And when we look at this, you know, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't stop at the cross, but descends into hell, 
rises from the dead. You know, this resurrection is 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 something that we really focus on. Um, ascended into heaven, uh, forever reigns and has dominion over all creatures. He sanctifies those who believe in him by sending the Holy Spirit into their hearts to rule, comfort, and make them alive. He defends them against the devil and the power of sin. So it does not end on the cross. It continues to move forward. So what, what does the rest of this article tell us about Christ? Yeah, it's his ongoing work. You know, I think sometimes we do, you know, we're tempted to bookend the, you know, the work of Christ. You know, you know, Christmas, Christmas and Easter. He's born, he dies and rises. There's the work of Christ. Christ is not done working for his church. Christ reigns for us. Christ intercedes for us. Christ sends the spirit for us. Christ is, is mediating with the Father for us, and he's, he's constantly at work on, on behalf of his people. He rules over all things, all creatures, for the sake of his church. Christ is living and active, caring for you. I particularly take comfort in, in this, this last line. You know, and, and we sometimes, when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, we transition maybe as if the three persons of the Trinity are always working alone. And in fact, the oneness of the Trinity is always working together. You know, it's Christ who's involved also in our sanctification. That's Christ in us. It's Christ who sends the Holy Spirit, who comforts and makes alive. And then that last line, he defends us. You know, Christ is defending us against the devil and the power of sin. You know, it's a mighty fortress, you know, for, for Christ is, you know, is by our side with weapons of the spirit. He's fighting for us. I'm never alone. When I struggle with temptation, I'm not alone. Christ is there. When I fail, Christ is there. When I persevere, Christ is there. He's always with us. He is our king. He is our savior. It says these words too, he forever reigns and has dominion over all creatures. The, the language, you know, the Emmanuel, the God with us, reality is there. In this life, we will have struggles. And one of the struggles I think a lot of us have um, at different varying forms throughout our lives is, okay, Jesus reigns over everything. He has all of this in his hands. He has all of that, but it does, sure doesn't feel like it at times. What would you tell one of your students? When they say, well, he forever reigns, but it sure doesn't seem like it. What would you say? That the reign of Christ has all of our good in mind. And he sees our entire life. He sees all things. He sees what he is making of us. He sees how we persevere, how we're growing. I mean, he, he, he sees things that we can only guess at and dream at. The sorts of things that sometimes we're blessed enough to see in hindsight, to see how God was working, he sees all of that. Now, he has not promised us until his return that life is going to be easy. He hasn't promised us that you know, once we're in Jesus, everything's all rainbows and butterflies and bunnies you know, hopping around. Uh, that's, that's false theology. He warns us you know, in this life, his people will carry a cross. You know, that we who bear the name of, of Jesus will not always have an easy time of it. In fact, we may have done times of, 
affliction and persecution and challenge and hardship. But he's also told us that he's with us and that he's reigning and that his ultimate promises are true and he will never forsake us. We, I think, need to calibrate our understanding of what it means for Christ to reign. Right? Uh, perhaps what we really want when we say things like this, and by the way, I totally understand those comments, right? This is, you know, we should never, never think ill of someone who struggles with this because what they're struggling with is the reality of this life as we wait for the return of Christ. We long for that time when he's returned when sin meets its end, when death is defeated once and for all, when Satan is gone, we long for that eternal bliss when the victory of Christ has reached all areas and we are gathered once more uh, to him. That's a holy thing to long for. In fact, the, the church cries out, right? Uh, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because we do anticipate something even greater. But don't lose sight of the fact that even now, Christ is reigning. It's not that when he comes back, then he's going to be king, then he's going to reign. Christ rules over us now, and he's already blessing us, and he's strengthening us and defending us. So persevere. You're not alone. One last sentence in this article. The same Christ will openly come again to judge the living and the dead, and so forth, according to the Apostles' Creed. It's intentionally simple and, and very straightforward. So just, we have two minutes left in our time, a little bit more than two minutes left in our time. What's going to be like at the end? What does it say? Sure. Uh, well, I think the, the interesting you know, thing that they're putting in here uh, is adding the word openly. So you know, the creeds confess he will come again to judge the living and the dead uh, and uh, you know, eternal life in Christ Jesus, judged, of course, by his merits uh, and, and by our faith in him. Uh, but what they're inserting there is this notion, there were some teachers that were saying, well, Christ has already returned and you just didn't see him. Or, you know, there's a secret return of Christ and this is the way it's going to be. And, and this is asserting very clearly as scripture does over and over again. We will know when our Lord returns. Every eye will see him. And for us who belong to him, it's not a day to be wary of, we should feel no fear or anxiety. Our Redeemer comes to us. And we already know the outcome of his judgment. Because it's not based on my own self and my own works, I know what that judgment's going to be. That I will be judged a child of God, clothed in righteousness, and dwell with Christ forever. What a glorious teaching. Well, Pastor, I think that brings us to our time. The Reverend Dr. Stephen Mueller, Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California, confessing the truth of Scripture from the Augsburg Confession, especially answering the question, who am I and who is Jesus? Dr. Mueller, thank you for your faithful teaching here on Concord Matters. It's been great being with you. God bless. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the home of Jesus.